I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our podcast today. Today, we are going to be looking at the cleansing of the temple from John 2, uh, verses 13 through 22. And of course, this is a really, really important uh, episode in our in our scripture. It's, it's one that we all know, everyone's familiar with, and yet here we find out that there's some problems with it, not only within the Revised Common Lectionary, but how it's treated by a gospeler. So jump in, Alan. Well... I actually found this out in preparation for this uh, podcast that this particular place in the Revised Common Lectionary is the only place in the whole three-year cycle that we deal with Jesus' cleansing of the temple. Which is really hard. I I think I I hear it every year. and I was blown away by that because, you know, it does play a central role in in all the Gospels. And... um, only John two thirteen through twenty two has a place even in the cycle of of year A B C. Um, the Mark passage, the, the Mark Matthew and Luke all have a, their own accounts. They don't show up anywhere in the Revised Common Lectionary, and so I was really surprised at that. And now one of the other things that we deal with is that John reports the cleansing of the temple, right at the outset of Jesus' public ministry, while the synoptics reported at the very end Mm -hmm. of Jesus' ministry. And there are some who try to argue that, well, maybe he cleansed the temple twice. (laughs) I, I think that's hardly likely. And so I think what we're looking at here is that John has placed this episode at the beginning of his narrative of Jesus' ministry on purpose. And, and this is not unprecedented. Luke does the same thing with the um, with Jesus' encounter at the synagogue at Nazareth, and and so you know one of the things that that um, New Testament scholars have recognized is that the way the, the gospel writers begin their gospels is important, and we should pay mm-hmm. attention to that. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that John has placed this episode at the beginning of his narrative, I think, indicates that for him it has a lot of significance for understanding. Who Jesus, who Jesus is, is. and what mm-hmm. he's about, mm-hmm. and I think one of the one of the themes in this passage um, would be the conflict between Jesus and the Jews, as they're called in the fourth gospel. And mm-hmm. you see a lot of it in in the other gospels, but in in John's gospel, it's almost constant. It's almost in every chapter that Jesus is is being confronted with the, by the Jewish leaders. So I think that's part of it. Um, this passage also contains that sort of bold declaration, destroy this temple and I will raise it up mm-hmm, in three mm-hmm. days, which in John's recounting of this episode, uh, we're told that it's a prediction of his own death and resurrection. And uh, again, this is <laughs> one of the first public events in Jesus' ministry in John's gospel. In John's gospel. So I think that makes it significant that you know John seems to want to emphasize Jesus going to the cross mm-hmm. and his understanding that he would die and be raised again right at the outset of his ministry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, we might be tempted to think that this tradition was only known to God, John because we only have this dialogue in John's gospel. Uh, the, 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 the thing that stands in the way of that is that the false witnesses at Jesus' trial in Matthew and Mark 
recalled that he said he would destroy the temple oh, and right. rebuild it in right. three days. And there it is. And in so Mark and and- we have, um, at least Matthew and Mark, are aware of this saying of Jesus, even if it's through the false witnesses, right? And mm-hmm. so um, it's, it's not just something that's in John, but I think this also indicates that John probably relocated the episode because I think it's unlikely that false witnesses would have remembered such a remote That's event. Too, it's, it's, it's interesting, and our reformers deal with this as well a mm. little bit. And I think, I think the reality, you know, as you're talking here, this reality be our kind of contemporary desire to craft this perfect synopsis of Jesus' yes, life. Yes, yes. And understanding that not only the ancient biography is different but mm-hmm. also the purpose of the gospelers is different and we we want to we want to make them other than what they are well we want to make them biographers who are writing a sort of an encyclopedia entry yeah exa- you know, exactly on jesus exactly and but it's problematic for us because in our world today still there's so much truth is facts right and um i think i think they're reaching into a deeper reality of what truth is yeah Truth is not necessarily limited to fact. In fact, if you will, or facts themselves can actually be deceptive. (laughs) People can use facts to make them say whatever they want them to. Exactly. Luther himself is going to say, this is not a big deal to our faith, Mm -hmm. which I think is important for today, too. I would agree. And I think it's, you know, as I said... John isn't the only one who who takes a passage and, and brings it front and center for a theological reason. You know, Luke does the same thing. So we have several reasons. This episode sort of presages the almost constant conflict that Jesus has with the Jewish leaders. Uh, this episode points forward to Jesus' death and resurrection. And then this episode also sort of initiates the idea of what is true worship. So I think that's, I think that's why John probably placed this event yeah, at the outset of his gospel. It makes sense. So, so in, in our account of John's episode of the temple cleansing, then John's narrative indicates that this took place when Jesus went up to Jerusalem for the Passover of the Jews. It's interesting that it's phrased that way because that almost suggests that at the outset there's there's kind of a critique of the way in which uh, the Jewish religious leaders were um, conducting the Passover. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and there are at least three references to Jesus attending a Passover in right. John's gospel, which, which has led those who try to look for facts in history and the gospels to posit that Jesus' ministry lasted at least three years, as opposed to Mark's narrative, which a lot of folks have, have recognized would fit easily within the span of a year. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and I would say it's more likely that the gospel tradition John used associated this and other events with the Passover, and John preser- preserves that connection that he found in the gospel tradition, but he works the episodes into his narrative without intending to create a chronology of Jesus' ministry. So I don't think we should use John's gospel to try to create um, this three-year chronology of Jesus' ministry, uh, as, okay. as, which is oftentimes done. I think that's done a lot, and yeah. um, it, it causes some confusion, right? No, I, I think that's a good observation. Well, and I think mm-hmm. it comes from that confusing of, are the gospels meant to convey history or are they meant to convey a message and right. they're meant to convey a message now they have historical references but when it comes to John's gospel i think it's important to note that the way john uses these stories is not necessarily chronological right right yeah. exactly yeah, yeah we see that 
on an aside, I, I wonder if, if Christians at that time had, had that sense of chronology. When we think about the way the Gospels originated, it's very likely that, that um, an apostolic figure, either in his preaching or teaching, served as the basis mm-hmm. for the testimony in each Gospel. So to try to ask John's Gospel to, cr- to provide us with information for a chronology of Jesus' life is asking the wrong question. I, think, really. I, I agree. I agree. Yeah. yeah. Because I think so desperately we want to recreate Jesus' entire life in well, our minds. as you said before, we want it to be, we want it to be a factual account. Yeah. And yeah. it's and I'm not saying it's not true and there aren't there aren't facts in it, but that's not the purpose of the gospel. Exactly. The purpose of the gospel is to tell the good news. Exactly. I agree hundred percent. Now so, when, when Jesus arrives at the temple then he finds people exchanging money, selling cattle, sheep, and doves. And we don't know, uh, John doesn't tell us this, but we, we might assume that this was taking place in the court of the Gentiles, yeah, which was mm-hmm. the outer court of the temple. And, and, of course, this was the only place that God-fearing Gentiles could worship God. They weren't allowed in the inner precincts exactly. of the temple. And, and the, the fact that this took place in the court of the Gentiles may be implied in the synoptic account where Jesus quotes Isaiah 56, 7, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so that might suggest that this is happening in um, the uh, court of Gentiles. And, and, you know, turning that space, which was intended for God-fearing Gentiles to worship the true and living God, mm-hmm. into a kind of a bazaar, or as Jesus says in the Synoptic Gospels, a den of thieves, would have made it difficult, if not impossible, for Gentile pilgrims to come and worship God. Uh, we don't know if this is his motivation or not, but that, I mean, it does seem to be Jesus' motivation in the Synoptic Gospels, whether that uh, whether that's really what John is meaning to convey is hard to say. No, but I think that's an important observation. So, Alan, tell us why this um, why this market existed. Yeah, the market existed in the temple courts uh, because Jewish pilgrims uh, came to Jerusalem from all over the diaspora to worship at the temple, and it. You know, understandably, it would have been impractical for them to bring their own sacrificial animals that had to be without blemish. You know, some of these folks were coming from a long right. ways. <laughs> it's very likely that they would have had to purchase their sacrificial animals mm-hmm. at the temple. The other thing is that the only coinage that was accepted at the temple was the temple shekel. They did not accept the Roman denarius or the uh, Greek drachma because of the images that were on them. Of course, of course. And so they had to exchange their Roman and Greek coinage in order to be able to not only buy these animals, but also they had to pay what was basically a temple temple per capita tax that that was required of, of all pilgrims to Jerusalem. And I think, of course, as I listen to this, it seems easy to understand how this became corrupt. I mean, right? Um, well, and you know, actually, um, I've always assumed that they were probably charging a hefty profit on all this stuff. It seems that people who really dug into the historical documents mm-hmm. haven't found a lot of evidence oh, of that. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Well, an, an interesting question, I guess, you know, who who's really running the market? There is some speculation about whether uh, Caiaphas, the high priest, might have been behind it. I don't know that we can know that. I mean, obviously, the temple establishment would have had to give, give their approval for this to take place. Mm, but, right. Um, whether they were benefiting from it personally or not, I don't know that we know that. Interesting, yeah, and, and a bit of a surprise. I would have assumed of corruptions. So explain this then. Um, 
what what's Jesus's concern then? If well, you know, as I said earlier, um, in the synoptic account of the cleansing, it seems that he's upset because uh, they've taken the only place that was available for Gentiles to worship the true and living God and turned it into a bazaar. Mm-hmm. Um, in in John's account, it's a little bit different. Jesus commands them to stop making my father's house a marketplace. This is a similar sentiment, but it really the emphasis is more on my father's house and, and what they were doing to my father's house. But the idea is, you know, that Jesus was offended by the fact that they were using the temple precincts for this kind mm-hmm. of uh, activity. Now, this would be seem to be the reason why the disciples are said to have remembered the scripture from Psalm 69.9, zeal for your house will consume me. And of course, um, the idea behind that then is that, that they saw this as an act of, of Jesus' zeal or, or fervor uh, in terms of preserving the um, integrity of the temple and, and the, the integrity of the worship of mm-hmm. God. And so again, we have this, this emphasis on the true worship of God mm-hmm. maybe coming into the background of this. Now, I will say as, as, as an aside that I think it seems more likely that the evangelist or the evangelists responsible for the content of this gospel remembered this scripture uh, and other passages, passages of scripture used to interpret Jesus' actions in John's gospel than that the disciples did. <laughs> I almost think this is an editorial aside that is that is sort of explaining what the editors, what the people who put John's oh, gospel together it, we're actually doing. It, interesting, interesting. And we'll talk later that the reformers actually deal with not only zeal, but they actually also um, are going to deal with how the disciples remembered this. And that becomes actually a big piece of their mm-hmm. understanding. So, mm-hmm. um, so on the face of it, you know, I would say that basically um, while it might seem to express support for the temple, I think Really, the, the emphasis is more on the theme of true worship here. Yeah, okay. And that's what's going on it, with Jesus. It's interesting. And so is this is, is the inclusion of this more about its literal space then or more about this true worship? Yeah. To me, in, in the context of, of John's gospel, there is enough, I think, emphasis on what it means to truly worship God. That That's really the, the main connection there is, is that um, he's concerned for the true worship of God. Mm-hmm. And then um, this, this action, um, really, you're talking about prophetic action. So does this whole thing um, prophesy, you know, Jesus's death, resurrection. Well, I would see it as a prophetic action, not in terms of foretelling something, but in terms of um, the prophetic action similar to what the prophets in the Hebrew Bible did. You know, they they did some strange things. They sure did, yeah. And these actions were meant to convey a message to the people of Israel. I think really this is where it all kind of comes together is that all of these themes that seem to be coming from the Hebrew Bible are coming from the prophets, and they seem to be all concerned with true worship. Jeremiah 7 is Jeremiah's famous temple sermon where he rebukes the people for the way they were worshiping and talks about he, how they turned the temple into a den of thieves. Isaiah 56.7 speaks about the temple you know, being a house of prayer for all the nations. So all of these things seem to emphasize the idea of true worship. Now, I think what we have to see is, is there is this kind of not so hidden conflict 
between the prophets and the priestly traditions Mm -hmm. in the Hebrew Bible. You read the prophets, even if you read the history books, prophets like Samuel, they seem to have no use whatsoever for animal sacrifices. The major prophets and the minor prophets even, you know, they're continually commenting on how the worship of Israel Mm -hmm. was false, it was um, insincere, it didn't translate into any kind of tangible Mm -hmm. change in their lives. And, And so even some of the prophets where it basically says, you know, I have not asked this of you. I don't mm-hmm. want mm-hmm. these sacrifices. The prophets seem to be in, in more in the vein that true worship of God, it comes from the heart and it transforms the life. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it does not consist in animal sacrifices that were at the center of the priestly tradition and therefore at the center of the temple establishment. So this is fascinating and, and awesome. And, but yet I keep thinking, um, would people, would they have tied into that prophecy? If they, if they'd been at the, at the, at the temple at the time that this, that Jesus was there, would they have been able to see this tradition of prophecy and, or would John's readers be able to see this prophecy this tradition? Well, I think, I, th- I think the gospel readers are, are assisted by, you know, the insertion of these scripture quotations and so I think I think the the gospel readers would have been more familiar with it. You know, I don't know that there would have been a widespread understanding of the critique of animal sacrifices per se. I think there would have been a fairly widespread understanding that the prophets um, were concerned with true worship, and they they and and that meant you know that your life needs to needs to reflect yeah. the fact that you are right. worshiping God and then this is the whole point of, of Jeremiah's temple sermon is you you come to worship after you've gone out and you've stolen and you've robbed and you've, you've right. committed adultery and you've committed murder right. and and, uh, and then you come to worship like you're some sort of holy people and right. Isaiah right. does the same thing sure, um, sure. Amos right. several of the prophets um, really rail against uh, that kind of false worship mm. so I mm. think they would have been a familiar with that tradition from the prophets yeah. and i think they they might very well have seen, have wondered you know i mean obviously people wondered is jesus one of the prophets of old you know right. be- because this would have been a connection was that jesus was concerned with false worship and and true worship this seems to be the focus of this yeah. event yeah. yeah so john uh reports that the jews asked him for a sign uh talk about this yeah well there are a couple things i want to emphasize here first of all Throughout John's gospel, you have this phrase, the Jews. The different uh, books of the New Testament have different ways of referring to... To this group of people. To uh, those who are especially the opponents. Right. And the Jews in John's gospel typically refer to the Jewish religious leaders, Mm -hmm. including the priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees who were opposed to Jesus. Mm -hmm. So some some of our modern translations go ahead and translate it, the Jewish leaders. Right. Uh, They don't just Uh. translate it, the Jews. But if you're using a more literal translation, it'll say the Jews, and, and it can give this sort of idea that John's gospel has a kind of anti-Semitic yeah. tone in yeah. general. And I think we have to understand that the reference is not to all Jewish people, but rather to the Jewish leaders mm. who oppose Jesus okay. pretty much on every turn right. in John's gospel. Right, right, right. Now, um, the fact that they asked him for a sign is a bit ironic because uh, in all the gospels, people ask Jesus for a sign. And in the synoptic tradition, Jesus says, I'm not going to give you a sign, basically. I'm not right. going to do it. 
Uh, and yet, John's gospel adopts this very language of signs, uh, the Greek word is mm-hmm. semion, to highlight several of Jesus' significant public actions mm-hmm. that were meant to demonstrate the meaning of his ministry, including the wedding feast the at wedding Cana, feast. Yep. healing the official son at Capernaum, healing the paralytic by the pool, mm-hmm. feeding the 5,000, and perhaps also walking on the water, healing the man born blind in chapter 9, the raising of Lazarus, perhaps the crucifixion and the resurrection, and perhaps even the resurrection appearance to Thomas. Traditionally, it has been identified that there were seven signs in John's gospel. They're not all identified by John as these particular signs. Only the first two. Uh, John says this was the wedding of Cain was the first sign and the healing of the royal official's son was the second sign. And then after that, it's kind of left more vague. Right. But, you know, I think you could almost point to a wide variety of things. You could even point to this event as a sign. As you well, could. Yeah. yeah. Even though the Jewish leaders didn't accept it as a sign mm-hmm. that that validated his authority to cleanse the temple, you could see this as a sign as well. Mm-hmm. So that's something that's very significant. You know, the, the oftentimes uh, John's gospel is known as the signs gospel, right? And of course, then the next piece is destroy the temple, and I will raise it up. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That. Th- this is a favorite allegory thing for our reformers, but what, what's John doing here? Well, again, I think I, I interpret this from a biblical standpoint in light of those prophetic actions because, you know, not only did the prophets do some weird things, they also said some things that would have been really strange. You know, Jesus does this prophetic action of cleansing the temple, and then he accompanies it with this sort of almost riddle-like mm-hmm. uh, saying, mm-hmm. you know, uh, destroy this temple in three days I will raise it up. And of course, the Jewish leaders take it on face value, objecting that the temple had been under construction for 46 years. Right, right, right. <laughs> uh, how, can you, how can you build it in three days, right? <laughs> and again, some want to use this to date Jesus' ministry. But again, I'm not sure that's the best use of John's I, gospel. I don't think so. I don't think so. And even our reformers would have thought that was inappropriate. That- yeah. So now, you know, we have this strange saying, obviously the Jewish leaders misunderstand it. And so then we have, again, the narrator comes in and explains to the reader that Jesus was talking about the temple of his body. And I think on the surface of things, that means that he's alluding to his death. This is, this is in and of itself a fairly significant disclosure because it would mean that Jesus was aware that he had to die from the very outset of his ministry. We don't really get that notion in the synoptic That's gospels. He's, he's, clearly, he's clearly uh, operating with a mission, but his mission is to proclaim the kingdom of God initially in the synoptic mm-hmm. gospels. Right. Right. And it's only toward the end of his ministry that he begins to tell his disciples that he must die. But in John's gospel, if this uh, statement about destroy this temple in three days I was raised it up is re- referring mm-hmm. to Jesus' death, then it would mean that Jesus is aware of this from the very beginning. And that's what John wants us to know or wants us to right. come away with it from is that Jesus knew this was his mission. He was going to the cross and he knew it from the very beginning. As a person who has has spent a lot of time working with the Synoptic Gospels, that's fairly significant that's to me. That's significant. I, I agree. I think clearly he wants us to know that right away. Now, I will say this. Some see the comment about the temple of Jesus' body in line with the idea that true worship 
you know, does not occur at any holy place, but rather it's in spirit and in truth. Yes. And, and they will say that, therefore, um, Jesus himself was the locus for true worship of God, that Jesus displaced the temple uh, by being the, the, mm-hmm. the center of God's presence, so to speak. Uh, of course, in the church, it was traditional to view Jesus' body that was the true temple as the church throughout church history. Right. That was more traditional. Right, right. So there are different ideas about how this is to be read. I, I tend to stick with the idea that, that um, John's gospel is, is trying to indicate that Jesus knew that he was going to the cross from the very mm-hmm, beginning. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think that's a, the clearest way I understand that makes, that makes sense, at least in my th- theology. Yeah. Sure. And then finally, um, uh, we have this little narrative insertion at the end. Tell yeah. us about that. Well, and, and you know, it's interesting the way John's gospel does this because we've, we've already seen the narrative insertion about how Jesus was talking about the temple of his body. We have the narrative insertion at the end of the mm-hmm. passage where we're told that after Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered, remembered. what he said. Yes. And as a result, they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. There are several of these narrative asides mm-hmm. in John's gospel, and I find it I find it fascinating because, number one, it makes it clear that whoever is putting this together is writing this clearly after the resurrection and perhaps long after the resurrection. You know, there had been time for reflection. You know, we talked before about when when they say that Jesus did all this to fulfill the scriptures, what scriptures are they talking about? Well, in John's gospel, there seems to have been time for them to Fill in those blanks, so to speak, with with passages like Psalm sixty nine nine and others that are quoted in in John's Gospel. Again, I, I as I said before, I think it's more likely that the Gospel writers were doing this remembering, and mm-hmm. I, so I th- see this almost oh, as a kind of an allusion sure. to their own activity in putting together the Gospel. Interesting, interesting. Well, our reformers, as we'll hear in just a few minutes, actually make kind of a big deal about this also. So yeah. it's a big, big scripture for us today. So I would say, really, the whole focus of this is that there seems to be an integral connection with this whole event and Jesus' death. John wants us to see the way in which Jesus is going to fulfill his ministry, which is through the cross and the resurrection. And that's focused on from the very outset. All right. Thanks. Thank you. So we're back, and um, I'm going to ask Christy to uh, help us dig into this deep passage uh, through the lens of the Reformers. So how did the Reformers approach this passage, Christy? Sure. This is a big passage for our Reformers, and we have lots of uh, discussion about it. I think one of the interesting pieces is they, they kind of try to look back at the tradition of interpretation, and they start pulling apart these little pieces, each each one. You know, why did they go to Capernaum and the Capernaum was the true home of of the disciples. But I think what's interesting, then they step away and say, actually, these questions aren't really important for our faith. But what is important about this is this is a mark to reform the whole church. Mm. So it becomes kind of a backbone piece for probably the Reformation as they're seeing it, as they're seeing the whole church is corrupt. What we see now is what we saw in the temple. Um but I think also for, for someone like Calvin, I think that means that the continual space of potentially 
corrupting the church with our own desires. But I think there's an immediacy there that they're seeing within the context of the church as they see it. I want to make an important aside for Luther really quick here, too. Um, When you read this in Luther's terminology, for example, when they talked about the Passover of the Jews, he, he contextualizes that into Easter, um, so oh, he really? goes back, and he, yeah, he, he, he looks at the beginning of the church, if you will, as starting with Adam and Eve. And so the Christian church, he is willing to stuff in to even what we would call Hebrew scripture. He'll use these Christian um, names for festivals. So I think that's interesting. Wow. Yeah. But I think it plays into the theology here, too, is that then this is corrupt. Now, Calvin mm. would never do that. Calvin would find that offensive. But well, and that seems that seems in line with the Lutheran tradition because there seems to be more of a tradition of reinterpreting everything Old Testament through a Christian lens. Exactly, and that's exactly what Luther does. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's seeing he's seeing this not as um, what's going on in, in in Jewish tradition and and the temple there, but rather as a as as an abomination to the Christian church. Well. So he's addressing the the concerns with the Christian church, obviously, mm-hmm. and <laughs> yeah. so that obviously allows you to jump then to the his his era, the 16th century, when he's seeing corruption right. directly, and that there is a need to restore the church. But it wasn't just Luther um, that saw that saw this as, as really a call to reform the church. And um, what's interesting is, so if this is a call to reform the church, what does Jesus's cleansing of the temple mean? Does this give them the right to to come in and physically oppose the church? Yeah, that's a debate. Reformers don't agree, so I think that's important to know. One of the people I read, uh, a little piece of Wolfgang uh, Musculus, he's uh, in the Reformed tradition. He is, um, I believe he's in uh, with, uh, with Bootser and, uh, in Strasbourg. And he, but he's, he, he also has, is quite working a lot with the, with the German territories and ends up in Augsburg at, at one point. So he's, and he's really involved with trying to kind of reconcile the church. But that said, in the terms here, I think he's quite, his, his interpretation is quite different because he feels that really armed, armed interaction is just fine. In terms, against the established against church. Against the established church. Wow. Yeah. And so that's kind of that if you were extreme reformed space of his, and yet he's a guy that's known theologically for really trying to reconcile. And I think it's, I think it's interesting uh, that, that he, he goes to that, to that space saying, yeah, it's, it's fine if you go in and he is actually critical of some of our Anabaptist groups are, would say there's never any space for any types of physical violence. Right. Um, and so he was actually highly critical of them for not being willing to stand up for the true faith, as mm. he would say it. And of course, we know that you know those folks who some of those folks who become the the modern day Amish, if you will, mm-hmm. um, Mennonites, and the Mennonites are right. st- would would still not take up any type of physical violence. Right. So I think that's an interesting piece there. But that that's not everybody, because as soon as he would say that, others would call for just the opposite. Um, another one of my uh, actually favorite reformers, Casper um, Kreitzinger, is a Lutheran reformer, should say, absolutely not. Um, there's no space to be physical. Your your tool, your weapon against, um, against 
poor worship is excommunication. You just get rid of people in the church. And for Calvin, there's a sense of simply needing to restore the purity of doctrine. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as I reflect on it, I mean, obviously, the use of physical force in the name of Christ <laughs> seems like an oxymoron. But then excommunication <laughs> in the name of Christ in our day probably seems equally objectionable. Uh, you know, I get the point mm-hmm. that they felt like they they had to do something radical to reform the church and to purify the church. But, you know, just from a modern perspective, both of those would not be really Aren't acceptable. Aren't they both alarming? Yeah. You, you, you kind of step back and you think, well, how would you, how could you not allow anybody in? But I think there's a sense of opportunity for forgiveness. There's a space for that, but then there's this space of people are not coming into the true church. People are, are still remaining outside. We have to, we honestly have to rid the church from this. I mean, even today, we still have this, this tension between those who focus on the biblical teachings about purity and the need for purity in the church and those who focus on the biblical teachings about inclusion and the need for inclusion in the absolutely, church. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> now, one, um, another one of my um, reformers that I enjoy is um, Eclampadius, and he's kind of interesting. Johannes Eclampadius, uh, he's another Swiss reformer, and he's at Basel, um, and he tends to be a very spiritual fellow, uh, and he 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 really takes an idea that the true true worship is is spiritual. So that the removal of the animals, it's 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 symbolic in terms of getting rid of the, the things that corrupt. So he has kind of a different take on it. So the things that corrupt us in terms yes, of, the, of anything uh, physical, physical anything material, anything base, material, flesh, et cetera, yeah, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. He, he's not the type that's for the armed surrection, but rather is taking this as, as a much more a spiritual, spiritual exercise. Yeah, yes, yeah. yes. So you mentioned that Calvin uh, sees the, the cleansing of the temple as a sign for the need to purify the church. You know, how did he develop that? What did he have to say about that? This is really an interesting one for Calvin. because Calvin likes to wrap a lot of different theology into this particular passage. Hmm. He'll use this to support the two natures of Christ, which I think is really interesting. Really? Yeah. <laughs> um, that this is clear um, that Christ is both human and divine, as noted by this. That so he's human in that he, he acts with his anger? His action is with anger, but also divine, <laughs> reflecting the nature of, of the temple. Yeah. That Jesus is Zeal the for temple. the Father's house. Exactly. Yeah, right. sure. And that he couldn't say that unless Jesus was himself divine. So wow. he uses it to support that, that theology. I think it's fascinating that that uh, <laughs> to see that Calvin wants to or is willing to recognize that Jesus responds in anger to the situation because I know that there are others who wanted to avoid that kind of interpretation. So I find that interesting, you know, that, that, he, that he went there. Well, you know, it's, what's interesting is, yeah, well, they talk about, they talk about anger, but I didn't find a single reformer that I read that wanted to say that it was a, a, a fast response, that this was all something that he decided upon you know so it was it was not spontaneous it was, it was planned spontane- well you you can decide so they make a big deal about that he had time to put together uh, this yes. whip yes. and that took time so he had to think about the process of putting together the whip again we're going kind of back to that they take up everything really 
<laughs> really, you know, literally, and literally they're really factually. trying. So that took time. So he, he thought about what he was going to do. It didn't just go in in this kind of rash, mm-hmm. unthought violence. And in fact, I, I told Alan earlier, they make a really big deal about what this world, what the word zeal means, claiming that this is... Uh, a slow, impassioned love, but not that one of Christ acting rashly and without thought, but uh, as a calculated use of divine power. I think it's interesting um, in that context, you know, whether or not, it, if it was a prophetic sign and Jesus is indeed divine, then then is this is this a more slowly thought out thing? Mm, is this a yeah. more intentional kind of thing? Well, it does seem that John's gospel presents it as something intentional. It -hmm. doesn't seem that John presents it as something rash. I mean, there seems to be significance behind this. It's not just uh, something that just happened. And I think that's exactly how they would say. And I think, as you talk about, even as it's placed in John, it's very intentional. Mm -hmm. And I I think everything Jesus does is pretty intentional, really, when you Mm -hmm. think about it. I I mean. Another thing that's interesting um, in there is uh, the idea of um, raising the temple. Is that something literal or is that figurative? And what does that mean? And, and really, their whole thing is that it is really figurative, pointing to the resurrection of Christ. Ah. Um, and it, there's, there's a sense there that this is indeed... Um, part of the theology piece of this, that it's, it's, it's the bodily resurrection of Christ. Mm-hmm. And that becomes mm-hmm. a really important piece for Calvin's as well. Um, and not just merely a symbol or not just an idea prints forward, but indeed really f- focuses on the, on the resurrection. Well, and you know, that seems to be the way, at least on the surface of things, the gospel presents it, you know, mm-hmm, that, that mm-hmm. Jesus' statement, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days, refers to his own death and his own resurrection. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Uh, so another another reformer chimes in on this, Heinrich Bullinger, and Bullinger uh, becomes the uh, uh, head of the Zwinglian after Ector Zwingli passed. He was, he's in Zurich. So he's he's... he's very much a Zwinglian kind of uh, theology, um, very symbolic um, type of fellow. But he, he steps in with this, and I have to ask Alan with his um, language background, that indeed the Hebrew use of the word uh, uh, raise, um, the imperative voice would indicate the future, that this is predicting the future, if you will. Well, so what happens is that definitely in Greek... Uh, the future tense is used to translate commandments, for example. Mm-hmm. I'm not as strong on Hebrew as I am on Greek, but I, I believe there is, the, there is a way in which the Hebrew can indicate future action. And I think that is also, that, that same uh, phenomenon occurs in Hebrew. That a, a verb that is future in its construction basically can be used as mm-hmm. an imperative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he's making that, yeah, that, comp, that, that, uh, the comparison with with Old Testament tradition and I guess he's commenting on the the statement destroy this temple exactly yeah exactly yeah. what exactly so he sees that as a prediction that they will destroy this temple or does he see it as go ahead and destroy this temple because that's what you're going to do anyway yeah yes <laughs> I would say I would say the second not yeah. as just a prediction right. but as as what will happen is right more yeah. of a more of a uh, uh, I know you're going to destroy this this temple, this temple of my body. So go ahead and do it, and and I'll raise it back up. Exactly. Again. Yeah. That's yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 
Did the did the reformers make anything out of the whole issue of um, the Jews asking him for a sign to demonstrate his authority to be able to cleanse the temple, or just the whole concept of signs in John's gospel in general? Well, I mean, yes. I mean, signs are a big piece of Calvin. We always read in our theology sign and symbol, sign sure, and symbol. Sure. So, a- absolutely, there was this idea of a sign, but yet Calvin's take is that the sign that is given is not necessarily what the Jews are looking for. I mean, it's like, it's almost as, like I said in my segment, you know, you could see this action as one of the signs of John's gospel, even though the Jewish leaders didn't accept it as such. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And that would be Calvin's point of, yes, but the, the Jews, or as we talked about, Jewish leadership doesn't understand it. Mm-hmm. They're, they're asking from a space that they do not, they do not understand. Mm-hmm. You know, the more I the more I learn about Calvin from you, the more I like him. You know, because <laughs> you know he seems to be taking a fairly common sense approach to his biblical interpretation. I I think so too. He's just an enigma as a character. You know, <laughs> because sometimes you just don't like him. I wonder if in today's world, if I've said this before, but if we if we would have put him with somebody that maybe had. Aspergers or mm-hmm. had just some problems actually really interacting with folks. Um, I, I wonder if that's how Calvin mm, was. And yeah. because you read his thoughts and his kindness, and yet at the same time, he's a bit arrogant. He's full of how smart he is. He's pretty sure he's smarter than everybody else. But in, in, in there's like this, this heart that is, has great concern for people. Mm. It's, he's very, it's very interesting guy. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't come across if you're just reading the institutes. It doesn't come across. And if you read a bio, also you get kind of this strange sense about him. I mean, part of you just won't like him at all. Yeah. And part of you likes him a lot. But then you realize this is a guy who dedicates like every minute, an hour, tireless worker. Right. Well, someone gets, who preaches a sermon every day of the week. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think he's brilliant. A, a truly brilliant guy. So you, you just have a really interesting figure he gets exhausted with people that don't work as hard as he does Mm -hmm. you know he gets exhausted with people that don't think he's right (laughs) you know um but yet somewhere in the depths of that is feeling like he's been called to to respond to the true church Mm. so and and to respond to how how god has called on his his life and he's willing to sacrifice himself for that you know if you will Mm. so kind of interesting interesting character wow Mm -hmm. So um, we, you talked about the use of the uh, of the word zeal, but I'm wondering in general uh, what what did the reformers make about some of these aside comments about the disciples remembering the scriptures and believing the scriptures? Did they <laughs> did they address that? Well, actually, Luther <laughs> loves it because Luther Luther turns it to saying, "Hey, these are average Joes, these disciples who are making this reference to scripture. They know their scripture." He says, "You know, <laughs> as they're reflecting on it later, and he really is kind of using it to say." You know, average people knew the scripture, and average people need to know it today. Mm. Um, so he kind of turns it into his own call, if you will, for universal um, reading of the Bible, mm. um, which is such a huge part of the Reformation because sure. that that becomes a call for that's one of the literacy. foundations. Yeah, well, that's one of the foundations. I mean, you know, even beforehand, you know, you've got Tyndall and others who oh, are absolutely. who are making translations into vernacular languages mm-hmm. and. and Exactly. Um, yeah. And Wycliffe and Huss as well. I mean, yeah. th- all these guys are um, believe in this. But, you know, for Luther, this is this is a big deal. They 
these disciples know the scripture. Mm. And um, so that was one of his asides with it, which mm. may not be the one we expected to hear, but was indeed how he took it. Wow. Mm. All right. Let's come back. All right. Thanks, Christy. So we're back, and uh, we're going to take some time to uh, reflect on this uh, passage for our lives today. And I, I just want to ask Christy, what do you th- what do you think are some of the implications of Jesus cleansing of the temple uh, for our lives, maybe for our current worship practices, just in ver- in in general? What does this have to do with today? Well, my take on it um, would be that to look at this in a very spiritual way is to look at how in our worship and 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 our and our following of Christ that we're we're corrupted by by other things that that are drawing our attention away and and there's actually a reference to this from our reformers where you know to what extent are we so drawn by, by discipleship that meets some personal physical need and or just our inner desires as opposed to those that are called on as opposed to you know carrying a cross and it really takes on kind of some of the things we talked about last time with cheap grace mm-hmm. um, versus costly grace and so yeah there is a i would say the the american version of christianity tends toward an almost sanctified wish fulfillment exactly exactly well you know i i do my prayers and therefore god's going to do this for me right and i'm going to get all all the things on my wish list are going to be checked off you know because i've i've done everything i'm supposed to and so this is really a call for us to sit down and look at what what God is asking us to do in our lives and, and what it means to be a true disciple. So that's kind of how I would look at it. And I think even though John puts this at the beginning of his gospel, our revised common lectionary is sticking it in, in, in the placement, if you will, um, on, on right, in Lent. Lent. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, suggesting to us too, um, that this is a time for us to examine our lives. Well, and, and it's our definitely, you know, Lent has a connection with, with the cross. Exactly. So that said, I don't know that everyone sees it that way. And I, and I think part of my, my concern is if we're looking at the broader church is that people are using this to say, well, um, we can use violence mm. um, against people that aren't worshiping my in my way or that Jesus has a violent nature it, it, it allows them to judge if you will who is what how they would see a, a true believer and not a true, true believer and give them an excuse to exclude people mm. or even attack them or even attack them which is even worse and well and we've seen that in our recent history where where people have have acted out violently uh, supposedly on behalf of Christ. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I guess my, my basic bias is that violence in the name of Jesus is a non sequitur. It just doesn't, it's an oxymoron. It just mm-hmm. does not make sense. But they would use this passage as an example mm-hmm. of why they can do it. So mm-hmm. that's why I think it's important to really think about what this passage is and what it, what it means. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, and you know, I mean, there's a larger debate within that uh, about violence in the Bible because uh, there, in the Hebrew Bible, there it, there do seem to be places where God is violent, 
in the New Testament, even for example, in the Book of Revelation, you know, there's a there are a lot of yeah, violent there are a lot of images violent there, images. and and I I guess I have to view any attempt to construe God or any perspective that construes God as endorsing violence or any perspective that construes Jesus as endorsing violence as something that reflects someone's own cultural bias, whether it's in the time of the Hebrew Bible, whether it's John the Revelator, whoever it may be, I think that represents their cultural perspective, not the essence of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I I don't see that. I just, that doesn't work for me at all. No, I agree 100%. One of the things that we brought up, you know, was, okay, what about excommunication? Mm -hmm. Because that also has a sense of not loving and embracing people, but kicking them out, and even it may not be violent. I can't say that it's still not abusive when you really think about people. Well, and, you know, it brings up a question because we all take the vow that we are going to uphold the peace, unity, and purity of the church. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, as I mentioned before, there is this tension between those who stress the purity of the church versus those who focus on the passages in Scripture that emphasize inclusion. And I, I don't think we can do a one-size-fits-all on this. I think it depends on the situation. I mean, anybody who's had to, had to relate to a child with tough love knows that there are times when you have to withdraw support you you have to withdraw the the sort of the means that enables a person to do things that are against their own uh, best interest Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and 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 sometimes it takes that kind of tough love for them to learn the lessons they need to learn in life and so i think we have to balance purity with love or else it becomes self-righteousness that becomes right. very rigidly exclusive. Right. Exactly. You know, you know, our rules of discipline, at least when I was coming into the Presbyterian church and I was studying the Book of Order, there was a preface in there that said this was to be applied redemptively. Now, to be honest with you, I haven't kept up with all the changes in, in the Book of Order, and the rules of discipline are one area where I haven't kept up with all the changes. No. But mm-hmm. I don't see that being applied very redemptively. I see it almost being a mechanism for being vindictive I agree. towards people. I agree. I, that's, how I've, that's how I've seen it. And, again, I honestly, they don't really like to touch on it too much in a seminary, I think, because they have the same question about it. So I think it depends on your motivation. I think if you can, you can say I'm motivated by a sincere concern for your welfare as a person. I'm motivated by a sincere concern for the welfare of the church. Mm -hmm. And, and if you can combine those two and not just have this sense of, well, we have to keep the church pure by any and every means, um, you know, I think we have to we have to beware of the temptation of having a vindictive spirit there because mm-hmm. that that doesn't that doesn't right. reflect Christ. It doesn't at all. <laughs> it doesn't at all. And I think when I look at a lot of these, it, it really gives us a chance to point fingers fingers too. You mm-hmm. know, and I think there's probably a difference. And maybe I'm not being fair, but I think I think there's probably a, a difference when it's a, a pastor who has been called to that role in the church maybe then someone who is still new in the church. I mean, Oh, you know, it's not even that. It's not even that uh, subtle. It's more blatant than that. I mean, there is definitely, there are definitely two standards mm-hmm, uh, when mm-hmm. it comes to this. 
you know, it, it's fraught with problems. Vindictiveness, double standards, these right, kinds of right. things. Right, yeah, yeah. You know, and I have to come back to the idea of Jesus as being violent here. And maybe the answer is in, is in zeal. And zeal can be problematic too, because zeal in the New Testament is only used a handful of times. And about half the time, it's referred to something negative, like envy. Mm-hmm. I think that reflects the fact that there's a fine line with this kind of zeal. I would read Jesus' zeal as being motivated, again, toward a legitimate concern that uh, the worship at the temple had had strayed from what it was intended to be, you know. And right. I, I again, I hear the prophet, the prophets' critiques of the worship of Israel ringing in my ears. Um, learn to do good, cease doing evil. This is what is true worship. True worship is something that, that cares for the needy and the, and the poor and the oppressed and doesn't just enrich yourself at, at the expense of others, you know. And, and I think this is what, what Jesus is motivated by, is this passion for the true worship of God. Mm-hmm. But, but we again, we, I think we have to be careful there because that passion can, can easily spill over into uh, violence. It can, it can, yeah. As a whole, I've been thinking about this age right now. Of course, we're recording this in the middle of a pandemic. We're recording this in the middle of problems at the at the national capital, um, and just all the anger out there that's going on, and all the discontent, and um, how even in my own life that I I I I feel my own anxiety and my own anger and. And, and having to be very, very aware of how I'm responding to the world. And am I responding out of anger or am I responding out of, out of something else? And I, I think that's a, that's a huge question mark. And um, I, I find it personally an interesting exercise in how do you become an agent of Christ's peace yes. when there's so much. And so... Yeah, can, it, you, can you be a peacemaker in the name of Jesus if you're motivated by anger? Exactly. And how do we pursue the purposes, the ends of the kingdom uh, in, in this current context? Well, unfortunately, all too often, folks who seek social justice or pursue these kinds of good things that are that are really in line i think mm-hmm. with god's purpose they do it out of a, a sense of anger and righteous indignation exactly and i you know i'm reminded of the passage in james chapter 1 um, let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, for your anger does not produce God's righteousness. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Gosh, that's a perfect quote. We can't expect that our actions will result in promoting the kingdom and furthering the, king, the ends of the kingdom if we're approaching them from a standpoint of anger. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And Right now, as we talked about with this particular situation, uh, there's so much anger. Just it, it, we're all we're all just so tense mm-hmm. that the anger is just right boiling right there. And and I think in a way, this I, I like. I guess I like to think of the the zeal in terms of just open your eyes, mm-hmm. open your eyes, be aware, and, and and take a look at yourself. 
and that this is right at the beginning of John, I'm going to die for this. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's a, an urgency there, but I don't think it necessarily, in fact, I think it, <laughs> I don't think it wants us to follow violence. I yeah, think. no, I agree. Yeah, to me, I would see zeal in a, from a biblical standpoint as being single-minded commitment to the purposes and the ways of God and to living out those purposes and ways and to, and to seeking to promote those purposes and ways, uh, seeking that, that, you know, God's name would be hallowed on earth as in heaven. Right. Uh, God's kingdom would, would come on earth as in heaven and God's will would be done mm-hmm. on earth as it is in heaven, you know? Yeah. And so to me, it's more of that single-minded commitment. And again, that can be problematic, you know, because you can be so single-mindedly commit, committed to God's purpose that you just forget about people, as we talked about with, with Calvin, perhaps. And I know he didn't forget people, but the way he related to people was, was problematic, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. I think when it comes to these kinds of matters, zeal, passion, commitment, we have to be wise and we have to be discerning about how we, how we approach it. Mm-hmm. I think so, too. So I think, you know, as we, as we preach this, we need to be uh, cognizant of, of who Christ has proven himself to be through the, the entirety of the Gospels. Sure. Um, and understanding this within the context of this prophetic yes. tradition. And I think we're going to nail it. Yes, I agree. Thanks, Christy. Thank you. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.